We're going to be continuing on in 1 Corinthians this morning. Um, a little bit of recap from last week. Uh, just, since we're kind of going through 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 13, and 14, uh, we're, we're talking about spiritual gifts, and I think what we're going to see is, in a lot of ways, there's going to be a lot of overlap when it comes to application through, through these verses and through this uh, through this passage. So I want to recap a little bit of that from last week, and then we're going to be continuing to build on some of these things. The first thing that Pastor Keith had mentioned last week is that we need to recognize that everybody has natural gifts, and it is those who um, are born-again believers and have the Holy Spirit uh, living and dwelling within them who are also blessed with spiritual gifts. But the challenge is that uh, we cannot become conceited or boast in any of these gifts because whether it's natural or by the Spirit, it's all from God. There's nothing that we have that we can uh, boast in. Um, and the reality is, is we are called to a specific work based on the ways that we have been gifted by God. And it's to boldly proclaim Jesus And it's to live in unity as the family of God. We're going to talk a little bit more about that this morning. A couple other things that uh, Pastor Keith had mentioned is that um, the gifts are given by the Spirit. They're given by the Spirit for the ministry that Jesus calls us to. And as Paul said, the outcome is determined by the Father. All right, so that's kind of the outline that Pastor Keith had given us. The gifts um, are given by the Spirit. The ministry that we are called to, to use them in is called by Jesus. And the outcome, right, the fruit of that ministry is determined by the Father. And so the challenge for us was to pray to the Lord to reveal those gifts to us. You know, a lot of times we want to take a test and we, we kind of fill out the bubbles and... and it kind of can give us that, that spiritual gift test. Um, but even more importantly than just a test is praying to the Lord that he would reveal how have you gifted me and what ministry have you called me to? Because everyone should be serving in church. And so this brings us uh, continuing in our passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's stand for the reading of the word. Paul continues, he says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members of the
uh, the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless our time together this morning. You would use me as a uh, herald and a teacher of your word, Lord, and that we would uh, come away from this having a better understanding of unity and diversity within the body of Christ and uh, the glorious way in which you choose to use us as you so desire. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You know, one of the hardships today, uh, even within the church, you know, out there in, in the world, it's one thing, but when it, when it starts to creep in and get within the church, it can cause a lot of problems, is a confusion of diversity and unity. You know, this idea of celebrating diversity or what kind of unity we should want within the body of Christ Uh, for our purposes this morning, I'm gonna, I'm, this is kind of the main point that I want to get across, and so I'll, I'll say it twice, so hopefully we can kind of lock it in, but the diverse members of the body of Christ are uniquely and providentially placed by God into the local church for the purpose of spreading the kingdom of God. I'll say it again, and then don't worry, we'll also define what I'm saying here, but the diverse members of the body of Christ are uniquely and providentially placed by God into the local church for the purpose of spreading the kingdom of God. Well, let's look at our passage and see how, how this is displayed here for us. Paul begins in verse 12, he says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members... And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So Paul begins with this metaphor of the body, right? What what makes a body a body? If someone says the human body to you, you have a picture that comes to mind. And I will say this, you not only have a picture that comes to mind of a complete body, you also understand when a body is incomplete, you, you, you understand when a body is disabled, right? When, when, there's, when there's missing links. We, we know what that looks like. We can, we can tell when that's happening. We can see when a body is not functioning properly. We can tell when a body is sick. We can tell when a body is crippled and, 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 and slowing down, right? We, we see these things. We understand the metaphor of a body. And because we all have a human body, we understand the necessity and importance of our own different body parts. Maybe except for the appendix. That one's still apparently a mystery to everybody. But I tell you what, you know when the appendix, appendix is acting up, right? Everyone knows the, the, the body is essential and the body is essential and how God has designed it. And so when a member of the body is, is missing or disabled or, 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 or incomplete, it's very noticeable. And this is what Paul's saying. It's, it's one body, but many members, many parts of this one body. And he says, so just as the body is one with many members, so 
also is Christ. So think of it this way. As the body is, so is Christ. Christ uh, identified with the church here. And this, this really goes back all the way to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 13, where Paul is dealing with the division in the church, and he says, look, is Christ divided? No, he's not. And so Paul is building on that even here, saying, why isn't he divided? Well, he's not divided because he's a singular body. He is a body. You can't divide the body. It doesn't work that way. If I lose a limb, it does, it's not like this is a limb that can go function on its own. The, the body cannot be divided in such a way. So what we're going to look at today is what we see with, with the gifting of the Spirit is that the community is Christ wherever the Holy Spirit is at work. Now what I mean by that is there are some churches where even though they have the name church or possibly even Christian on their front door, they are not part of the body of Christ because the Holy Spirit is not at work there and they're apostate. There's a church uh, just down the street in Naperville that claims to be a Christian church, but they deny the deity of Jesus. They deny, the, they deny the Trinity. So they can call themselves a Christian church all they want, and they can think that they're gifted by the Holy Spirit, but it's not. It's demonic. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's not spiritually beneficial, and it's actually antithetical to the gospel. So as much as they might want to claim to be part of the body of Christ, they're not. It is only those who have been given the Holy Spirit who are genuinely part of the body of Christ. So when believers are saved, they are joined to Christ as part of the community of faith. Uh, theologian and, uh, uh, and scholar Peter Lightheart wrote that the church is the community of God. The church is the community God has delivered and continues to deliver from evil desires, evil habits, evil imaginations, as we make our way to a final deliverance, the church is a picture of salvation in social form. And so, what we see throughout the New Testament is that the church is the family of the Father, right? We are adopted into the family of the Father. The church is um, the body of the Son, right? Paul uses that metaphor here. We are the body of Christ. He is the head. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean? Well, it means that Christ and his church form one body together. It's this idea of union with Christ. When you, uh, when you are truly a believer, you are joined to Christ, but you're not joined to Christ on, like, on your own to just go be your own individual. You are joined with the body of faith. You are joined with the church. And, and Christ identifies with his church even in the book of Acts. When Paul is persecuting the church and Jesus stops him in his tracks, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Now, why is that? It's because Christ self-identifies with his church. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I'll just give a couple quick ones. Uh, one is we as the church, as born-again believers, share the Spirit of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit that lives and reigns and dwells within us. 
right? Have you ever wondered why the atoning work of Christ applies to me or applies to you? Why do the benefits, the, the, if you read Ephesians 1, all the benefits that, that really belong to Christ, right? The inheritance of the world it, it, and eternity itself belongs to Christ, and yet, and yet Paul says it belongs to us as well. We're even told that we're going to reign with Christ. Well, how, how does this apply to me? How does this work on my... Well, it's because you share the very same spirit of Christ. You are now the temple of God. Christ is going to continue his ministry, his prophet, priestly, and, 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 and kingly ministry through the body of Christ, through the church. So now Jesus is present in this world still but he is present uniquely through the corporate body of believers. That is why our mission as a church and our unity is so vital. You know that passage in John chapter 13 where Jesus says, they will know us by, or they will know you by, your love for one another. It's not just by our love, It's by our love for one another. It's for our love with each other within the body of Christ. Now, why is this so important? Because when the church is not characterized by their love for each other as brothers and sisters in in Christ with this kind of unfailing and unconditional love for each other, then what we're actually doing is painting a distorted picture of Christ himself. So we need to be uh, united in this love for one another but we're also called, as, as we see, we're, we're these members of Christ, these bodily members. We're the hands, we're the feet, we're the mouths, we're the ears, we're the eyes, right, of Christ for the gospel. But when the church instead is a picture of just certain members doing all the work and the majority of the people in the church just passively sitting by, not really doing any work, not really serving, not really evangelizing, not really involved in the Great Commission, and it's just left to just a few, then guess what? It paints a distorted picture of Christ himself. That's not how it was designed. That's not how the body's supposed to function. Could you imagine how much I could get done if 90% of my body didn't function? I would, I can hardly get the stuff done with 100% of my body functioning. It kind of reminds me, yeah, some of you guys may get this more than others, but uh, for, for those of us who, who were brought up on computers, we're, we're, we're kind of taught to type at an early age. Some of you guys did not get that training. And it's very evident right now when you guys have to type things up and it's the one, like, kind of this, right? And we, now we see the same thing with texting, too. You, the kids now are just like, and they can send it off. And then you can tell when someone's like, okay, hold on, I've got to make the letters bigger. I won't. Yeah. And the autocorrect's not working. Okay. We, we recognize that it's easier to type when you use all ten of your fingers as opposed to two. Right? That's, 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 no, it, it's true. It's, it's true. <laughs> that's the picture of a body functioning correctly, right? Like if if you imagine the church as being all ten fingers, but only two of them are doing the work, right? It's going to be much slower. God will still do his work, 
but it will be much slower. And it won't be the way that he has designed it to function. Instead, everybody is part of this corporate body and everyone should be working together for the ministry of the gospel. If we don't do that, and if we don't do that in unity, then we're painting really a distorted picture of Christ because we are his representatives on earth. So this takes us into uh, verse 13. Paul says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to of one spirit. A, a, a couple things on this. This is pretty much the main, you could say, controversial part of the scripture here because there's, uh, there's language issues and how to understand some of the, the function uh, here within Greek, but really it's this idea of um, we are baptized. Some of your translations say by. Some of your translations will say in. We are baptized in one spirit. And there is much discussion over what Paul could mean here. The main controversy really um, is over whether or not it's... it's so um, in the Pentecostal tradition, there are some, not all, but there are some in that tradition who believe that when they read this passage for by or in one spirit all were baptized, that this is a special kind of spirit baptism. Maybe you've heard of something like this before. Right, that there's a kind of special baptism of the Holy Spirit after salvation for those who are really endowed spiritually. And the empirical evidence of this special kind of spirit baptism is speaking in tongues or even miraculous healings. But is there that kind of baptism? Is there a separate kind of baptism of the Spirit? No. No, it's, it's a misunderstanding of, of this text. That's not what Paul's saying. In fact, you could argue that chapter 12 is arguing against that kind of thinking. Um, for one thing, this kind of uh, Gnostic interpretation was battled even all the way back in the second and into the third century of the church with uh, Clement of Alexander. Alexandria, sorry. He was a church father, and he writes this. He says, "'You are all one in Christ Jesus.'" It is not that some are enlightened Gnostics and others less perfect spirituals. Everyone putting aside all carnal desires is equal and spiritual before the Lord. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Who qualifies as spiritual? It's the one who has been given the Holy Spirit. And who has been given this Holy Spirit? Anybody who has been reborn in Jesus Christ. It is not held off until you reach some level of faith or some level of prayer life or some level of self-discipline and then God goes, you know what? You've graduated. You get the Holy Spirit now. Enjoy. You, you, you get this kind of special um, spiritual presence among the lay community. And that, that thinking is it's, it's Gnostic thinking. Gnostic, by the way, that when I, when I say that, just to expand on this idea, is it was this heresy that was really popular, and, and I will say this, it's actually still popular today, of this strange separation between the body, the physical world, which is wicked, and the spiritual world, which is good. And so the Gnostic thinking uh, plagued the church as well, and especially in Corinth, it was particularly 
uh, invasive with this cultural syncretism that we talked about way back in chapter 1, where the culture and the ideas of the culture are invading in the church itself, and Paul has to confront these. So even in this world, when it came to something good like spiritual gifts, the Gnostic way of thinking is, hey, look, there are those who are even more spiritually enlightened within the church, and it's those who can do miraculous things. It's those who can do things that the physical world cannot explain. They must be better Christians. They must be closer to God. They must be more spiritual. And this was, this was a false idea that is, has really been something that, they, that faithful Orthodox Christians have tried to use Scripture to show as false since the beginning, since the apostles. Your closeness to the Holy Spirit is not built on your giftings or your experience. Our closeness with God and our closeness with the Holy Spirit really is built, as, as um, Clement of Alexandria notes, he says, it has to do with your forsaking of the world and the desires of the flesh and putting on the Word of God. If you want to grow closer to God... It is not by trying to speak in tongues. It is not by trying to do miraculous healings. It's not by trying to predict the future. It's by looking at everything through a biblical lens and dying to self daily. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 13, verses 13 to 14. He says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife, not in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. See, so it really doesn't matter how often you think you speak in tongues. It doesn't matter if you think you can grow someone's leg to be a little bit longer. None of that makes you spiritual. And it does not mean you have a special relationship with God. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about that kind of baptism. And really, it's actually easiest to, to disprove this kind of Pentecostal mindset when you just don't overcomplicate the text. For by or in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Paul's talking about baptism. We don't need to overcomplicate it. Baptism is the sign of unity God desires for his church. There's no unity without baptism. And so this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you know, if you you were to ask Paul to kind of expand on this, it'd be this idea of, What is the unifying element that shows when one has passed from death into life? What is the unifying thing that everybody in the church is called to do to signify the change that has taken place, the rebirth that has taken place within? Baptism. Baptism is how that's understood. And so no matter who you are, No matter what your status or education or wealth or talents or nationality, all go into the water dead and are reborn. That's what baptism signifies. Now, as Pastor Keith said a couple weeks ago, the act of baptism itself does not magically save you. Um, There's a, a, a Latin phrase 
called ex opere operato, and it's this idea that the act itself is what does the work. And, and that's not what Paul's saying here. That's not what the New Testament is saying. But it doesn't mean that baptism isn't significant. Biblically, it's regarded as the sign of your entrance into the church. And so its effects are very significant. And it is a means of grace, like communion, like prayer, like the preaching of the word. It is not just an empty action. But much of the weight of this sacrament has been lost on us uh, for a couple reasons. One, uh, because there's no risk involved today. Uh, let me, let me uh, for many in history, and actually even for many still today in other parts of the world, to get baptized was the event. To get baptized was the event that would get you persecuted, that would get you ostracized by your family, or even killed. See, in a lot of places, claiming Jesus even as your Lord and Savior did not pose much of a threat until you were actually baptized. Now why? Why, why would this be the case? Because baptism was understood as the sign and seal that you had forsaken all else. Your culture, your family, your old religions, Caesar, Judaism, Islam, and you are now brought into the family of God. You've forsaken everything else and you've been brought into the family of God, the church, under a new father and a new Lord. What was it that you did that showed and proclaimed to the rest of the world around you that this has taken place in my heart? Baptism. But today we don't really have that risk. And I think that's one of the reasons, among others, that baptism isn't really all that important or doesn't seem to be. The other reason, though, is because um, we've kind of lost the unifying significance of baptism because we've become very individualistic. See, what I mean by this is baptism isn't just about what God has saved you from. It's also about what God has saved you into. You were not saved as an individual into your own individual relationship with God separated from the body of Christ. You were adopted into a family of salvation. And we share an eternal father. So God has brought you into the single body of Christ. And it is an event that Paul says combines us all. Jew, Gentile, slave, free. He adds in Galatians, male, female. All of us are new and one in Christ. We are now baptized and brought into the family of God with one head. And in God's Holy Spirit, we have been brought as separate slaves of sin and death and have now been united in our Lord Christ Jesus. And where is this unity signified? Baptism. So in the church, and in some ways, in the church up until our kind of modern setup, which is characterized by a tradition of ignoring tradition and the liturgy of non-liturgy, if you were going to be seen as a member of the body of Christ, 
If you were going to take the Lord's Supper, if you were going to serve and participate in God's kingdom building mission, you first needed to and you wanted to get baptized. This is, this, Paul builds on this even more when he says this next passage, which may seem kind of strange the first time we read it, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. This has been confusing for some as well. John Calvin thought it could be about the Lord's Supper, but he wasn't convinced either way. The problem is that the language of communion in the New Testament, uh, we don't see this idea of drinking of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord's Supper is very unlikely there. Instead, I think this gives us another clue to Paul speaking about the sacrament of baptism as this unifying signature of the body of Christ. We are all baptized into the body of Christ, and all of us together, it says, are one body, right? And we are all made to drink of one spirit. The word in, in Greek, and I told you, I said I had to dive into it a little bit more here with this verse, but the word in Greek does not necessarily mean to physically drink from a cup. It's not, and maybe you had this idea of the Holy Spirit being in like a chalice and all of us took the, the sips of the Holy Spirit. It in, it instead, Paul uses this same verb in an active sense in 1 Corinthians 3 when he talks about God watering. Now think about this idea, this picture, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where um, this, this watering takes place, okay, within this field, right, where, where, the, the, where, where the workers, right? Some of us plant, some of us water, but God gives the growth. It's kind of this picture. But this also has Old Testament connections as well. In the prophet's, Isaiah and Ezekiel, they talk about this kind of pouring out of the Spirit, and the same language is used. We see it in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. See, Peter says even in Acts chapter 2 that this scripture has been fulfilled, it's fulfilled at Pentecost. How? Because the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples, right, as they're praying. And as one. And then what happens? Then the spiritual gifts are displayed. Peter begins teaching, right? They're speaking in tongues. The Spirit is on full display in a unique way. And so many biblical scholars have rendered this word as being understood as drenched. You have been drenched by the Spirit. We have all been drenched by one Spirit. We've all been flooded by one Spirit. So the idea is about us being watered, a flood even, that signifies unity within the Holy Spirit. Well, what would that be a metaphor of? Baptism. So what's the point of all this? This, this? this kind of spending time on this verse like we have. Well, we have the baptism coming up on, on August 15th. 
So if you have not been baptized yet as a believer, if you claim to be a Christian, right, and a part of the body of Christ, you are commanded by God's word to be baptized in order to truly experience the reality of what you claim. And I figured that since we have the baptism coming up next month, it would be good to spend a little extra time on this verse. The reality is don't minimize the importance of baptism. It's not optional. It's not secondary. Now, this is usually the part where people then ask, well, do you have to be baptized in order to be saved? And I think a lot of times this question really stems from a misunderstanding of of baptism. Um, And it probably has more to do with uh, traditional interpretations or misinterpretations and a fear of looking too much like we're Roman Catholic than just letting the text guide our understanding. Yes, the thief on the cross is saved without being baptized. Yes, someone on their deathbed can cry out to the Lord and be saved with their last breath. But you are not hanging on a cross. And you're not in the hospital right now. You're here. And so it would be better to follow what Scripture teaches in Acts chapter 2. After Peter was done preaching, they, people were cut to the heart. It says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul is doing nothing here beyond just building on what has already been taught since Acts chapter 2. Okay, that was my baptism spiel, but now we're going to move into more about members. Look, I didn't write it there. Paul did. So we had to talk about it. But now Paul seems to go back to this idea of For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing... Where would the sense of smell be? As you see in your, in your bulletins, the, the title there for these verses is The Need for Different Members. Diversity is essential. Diversity is essential for the kind of unity that God desires for His church. The church is one body, but it is not one member. And so Paul uses this body, this, this body parts as an analogy, right? Different body parts are necessary to accomplish certain tasks. If we didn't have arms and legs, again, it would be very difficult to do the typing. It would be very difficult to send out text messages. Different parts of the body, um, or sorry, I should say deficient parts of the body make tasks more difficult as well. It is not only 
necessary that we have the members gathered together and functioning, but they also have to be functioning properly. You want to be used in the right place. Some people, they have this desire or they have this thought even that, well, I love the Lord and I want to serve him. So I need to go to seminary and I need to become a preacher. And maybe that's actually not how they're gifted. And that's not what God wants them to do. And that's okay. Because you're just an, you're an essential member just like anyone else. But you have been called to a unique work. You are a unique body part. You have a specific function. My hand cannot see, right? So how dare my hand say to my eyes, I have no need of you. I can type all by myself. But I need my eyes. If I'm going to function efficiently, right? This is, this is how God accomplishes his mission through his church. And he wants to do it through each and every one of you. And he is going to do it through different gifts and the different ministries that he has given us. He doesn't only want pastors. Every member and the diversity that they bring into the body of Christ is essential for the work that God wants to do. Unfortunately, today's churches are trying to create this artificially. A lot of Christians have fallen for a worldly definition of diversity. And so we are seeing Christian institutions and Christian colleges and Christian parachurch ministries and even Christian churches themselves seeking diversity like a business. And this is, you know, this is even a question that I hear now among pastors. When I meet a new pastor or someone else in ministry, one of the first questions I get is, so what is the demographic makeup of your congregation? How diverse is your church? But here's the problem. If you look at what this text says, nowhere in this text does it say that we are called to create diversity. That's not our job. We are not supposed to be trying to have or trying to make our church have a certain percentage of one demographic or look a certain way. And it is a trap that is deceiving Christians all over. And the problem, the real problem of it is because when you seek artificial diversity, you're going to have artificial results. It's ineffective. You can't try to look like the world, pretend like it's biblical, and then think that you're going to have good fruit come out of that. It's artificial. It's ineffective. And I think churches, uh, some hopefully are learning that right now, but over time they're going to be figuring that out. In fact, worse than ineffective, when churches seek to circumvent God's divine and providential work of diversifying His body, and they try to accomplish it through the flesh... It's actually the church modeling themselves and thinking like the world. So once again, like the Corinthian church, cultural syncretism. What are the ideas of the world? Well, we got to have diversity higher. We got to look a certain way. 
We have to make sure that our congregation, the percentages, look like the city around us. It has to match that. But artificial diversity, it's, it's antithetical to the gospel and the mission of the church. And what we see is it's, it's actually being led by modern Pharisees in the church who are more concerned with looking godly than actually being godly. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now how does this translate to what I'm talking about with diversity? When we in the flesh try to seek to impress the world by showing how diverse we are as a church, look at us, look at what we got here. You can feel comfortable here. When we, when we try to do that in the flesh, we've become Pharisees. We're hypocrites. We're trying to put on this outward appearance of godliness. But we're trying to do it in the flesh. 2 Timothy 3 says, For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But listen to this, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. You can find a lot, a lot of diverse churches where their whole getup and their whole makeup is about trying to diversify and, and look appealing no matter where you come from or what culture you're from or what ethnicity you are. And yet on the inside, they don't teach the word. They don't preach the gospel. They don't discipline their members. They let sin run rampant. I'm all for diversity but this is the kind of diversity I want. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body. How? He desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? What we need is for God to create the diversity within the body of Christ. And he does this through the church using the diverse gifts that God has given them and indiscriminately pursuing the Great Commission in our local mission field. We have to remember something that seems to be forgotten, which is we don't build the church. Christ builds his church, and God places the members in the body as he desires. We don't go out trying to find the best of the best of the best. God places who he wants. We're not, looking, we're not a business. We're not an organization. 
We're not looking to fill a diversity quota. We're not putting ads up for the best speakers. We're not putting ads up for the best and newest and most hip musicians. We're not looking for the most gifted marketers to help expose us to the community so that people look at our website and go, I want to go there. God has placed you in a local church to be an essential and active member of that body. He places you where he desires you. He brings in who he wants to bring in. And how dare we try to circumvent or stand in his way and say, you know what, I think I got it. God has placed you If you're here at the Oasis and this is your church, God has placed you here to be a member of this body. There are no bench warmers. There are no second stringers. There's no JV. There's no hierarchy of spiritual gifts either. We cannot say that we need the gift of teaching but not the gift of leadership. We cannot say that we need the gift of prophecy and exhortation but not the gift of mercy. Each of us has been joined together as one body of Christ with one mission, to make disciples of all nations. And so this is where the application kind of overlaps because I ask, again, as I asked a couple weeks ago, and I know that Pastor Keith challenged us with last week, is how are you doing that? We are a church full of diversity because God made it diverse. And each one of you, as as Pastor Keith also said last week, you know, when someone asks, like, well, what's the diversity in your church? Like, hey, guess what? Everyone's unique. We're a very very diverse church. Why is that? Well, because there's no two people alike in our church. By the way, I could probably say that about anybody else's church. Diversity is a gift from God. On his terms. The Oasis is a diverse church because I'm not Ralph. And Ralph's not me. And Steamer and I have different gifts. And Jimmy and I have different gifts. And I need Jimmy's gifts sometimes. A lot of times, actually. Because if anybody knows Jimmy or I, and on any sort of ministry level, you, knew, you know that if something's missing, you go to Jimmy. You don't go to me. I've already lost it. I'm, you know. <laughs> Jimmy's got it organized. That's how we're supposed to look. That's how we're supposed to function. So we are the ones who need to be the hands, the feet, the mouths, the eyes, the ears for gospel ministry. We don't need to be waiting for someone else to come through those doors to do it. So I want to add to end here some ways that you can be doing that. None of these are new. None of these haven't been mentioned before. But it's just something to be thinking about as you think about how God has gifted you and how you know that you have been called to serve. One is the prayer ministry. You know, Pastor Keith talked about that last week. We had prayer and worship night here on Wednesday. Right? We need prayer. We need prayer on our own, but we need prayer together as the body of Christ. 
if we want to see revival, if we want to see change taking place in our community, it's not just about doing, doing, doing. It's about sitting and praying together and crying out for God to do a work. It's not about us just going out in the flesh and trying to build a church. We need to pray for Christ to build his church, for God to continue to bring in and place the individuals that he wants in this church as he desires. But it doesn't mean we don't get or never have to do anything. We need people. We, we need people who are going to be discipling and evangelizing. Right? Maybe we need people, and I'll kind of put this with evangelism, because sometimes evangelism can look like what I tend to do, and, and I, I like to go out, I like to find strangers and talk to them about the gospel. But that's not the only form of evangelism. So I paired it with hospitality, because it's good also to be building relationships for evangelism as well. Do the people at, at your work, do your family do they know who you are? And do they know how much you care about them to be saved? Is that something that the Lord has put on your heart that you're working on and is that a way you're serving? Another one is abortion ministry. Right? We have issues of justice in this culture. So we need to be praying about that, but we also need to be actively involved. Other ones are things like generosity and financial giving. Some of us have been blessed financially and God is calling us to use those for the kingdom. The point though that I want to get at with any of these or anything else that comes to mind is that our God is not only a God that has put you where he's desired you, but he's also a creative God. And there's a lot, I would say even endless different ways that he wants to use us to build his kingdom and to bring people to know the Lord and to make disciples. But you first have to be willing, right? You have to want to do that. You have to want to be a part of that. And so I just pray that you would, if you get nothing else out of this morning, you'd recognize two things. One, you are a uniquely gifted and essential member of the body of Christ. So get to work, right? And if you want help on figuring out how to do that, there are those of us here who would love nothing more than to work with you and figure out what God is calling you to do.